Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 4, 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray that your spirit might cut us to the quick, might encourage us and direct us, and might work your renewal and new life deep down into us. Make us a people who repents and believes because we we know that your kingdom is at hand. It is here in our midst by your Holy Spirit. So be at work, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. There's that story in the Gospels where on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was talking to his disciples and telling them that that they would all betray him. They would all fall away. And Peter adamantly 
says to Jesus, I will never fall away. You remember that? Of course he does. Not very many hours later, uh, he's in the courtyard, he's seeing Jesus on trial, and people are begin asking him, hey, aren't, aren't you with this guy? I think I've seen you with him. And Peter denies Christ three times. In such a short span, he went from, I will never fall away, to denying his Lord and Master. And I, I resonate with that story, because I can think of many times in my life when I have thought to myself, I can handle this. I'm the type of person that can endure and deal with such and such things. And then as those things come, uh, I, I realize I'm out of my depth. I don't have the character to handle those things like I thought I'd be able to handle them. Uh, there's often a disconnect, isn't there, between how we see ourselves, who we think we are, and who we really are. We can be a a disciple of Jesus, and yet there may be hardships that we are going to face that we are not quite prepared to handle faithfully. Well, we're starting a new series in the Gospel of Matthew, and this series is going to focus on being a disciple, being a, a follower of Jesus. Now, in past years, we've looked at Matthew already. Um, we've looked at some of the birth narratives. Uh, we jumped through some of the main teaching discourses of Matthew's gospel. Um, this series is going to primarily focus on what I just read and also the Sermon on the Mount. So that's where we're going to be for many weeks uh, and we're going to focus on being a disciple. And so as we go into this series, I want us um, to kind of think about discipleship a lot. That's, that's where our focus is going to be. And I think it's important that I, I kind of name what we're aiming at in this series. And there's a number of things. Um, one of those is a distorted uh, or maybe a partial idea of discipleship that I think is very common for us. There's a number of these sort of distortions or, or partial views of discipleship. Um, one is to think of discipleship in a binary, a sort of yes or no. You are a disciple or you're not a disciple. And, um, and that's kind of the only way we can think about discipleship. And um, there's another model, which is the intellectual model of discipleship, which is where being a disciple is primarily about believing certain things or thinking certain things about Jesus, especially in the abstract. Others look at discipleship in a a sort of holiness uh, mindset, which is that being a disciple is all about purity and about godliness and character. And so that's how they primarily think about discipleship. And then maybe last of all, there's the sort of action model of discipleship. In some traditions, being a follower is really, it boils down to whether or not you are doing the sorts of things that Jesus called us to do, serving the poor, preaching the gospel, or something like that. It's an action model. So I want us to see that all of those models have a grain of truth, um, but all of those are sort of reductionistic. We want to look at the full picture of discipleship in this series. Secondly, I also want us to take a look at who we are. That's really the maybe the biggest aim. I want us to be reflecting on who we are as people. What is the aim of your life? What are you you directed at and how you're living your life? What are the habits that you have? What is your character? Thirdly, I want us um, to think about the complexity and the insanity of the time in which we live. We live in a very bizarre time. 
Things are changing so quickly. Our lives are haphazard and quick-paced. You know, in many ways, they're chaotic. A lot of us feel enslaved, like we're just trapped, and by our lives, our lives are sort of dictated to us, and there's really no way out of how we're living. It's a confusing time in which we live. And so I want us to be thinking about how can we be properly formed into who we're called to be. And then fourthly, um, I want to try to speak to this disconnect between you know, what we might think of as our spiritual life and then the everyday stuff that we face. There's often a disconnect between you know, caring for our elderly parents or for little kids and our walk with Jesus, or uh, dealing with a difficult employee or coworker or a boss and our relationship with Jesus, or um, maybe the, the friendships we have or the family relationships we have, and maybe some of the dysfunction there, and then our relationship with Jesus. And what I want to show is that those are the very places where God is calling us to grow and develop as his followers. They're the very places where God promises to be with us and to be at work in us if we would be attentive to what he is doing. So the question that arises from this series and that I'm hoping that we're going to answer is what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And what does it look like to become uh, more and more like him over the course of our lives? And so the model that we're going to see, I hope, in this series of discipleship is going to Um, Focus on being with Jesus, developing the character of Jesus, and doing the works of Jesus. So I'll come back to that. But we're going to start today by looking at Matthew's gospel and kind of this passage that leads up to the Sermon on the Mount, because I think it gives us some important context and begins to point us in this direction. So we're going to look at the gospel of Matthew, we're going to look at the master, and we're going to talk about being with the master And uh, I already feel like we're behind uh, in time, so I better get moving. So let's talk about Matthew's gospel. This is a great place to look at the idea of discipleship. And uh, there's a number of reasons for that. But let me tell you what I mean by discipleship, because I've used that word a lot already. What is a disciple? A disciple is a learner, is a student. Now, you probably know that, but it's not a a, a learner or a student in the way that we think of modern schools where you have a classroom and a desk and you're learning information and taking tests. Not that sort of student. A disciple is more like an apprentice, someone who follows another person and imitates that person and develops the character of that person as they relate to one another. And there is instruction in learning, but you're learning a whole way of being. You're learning their wisdom, but also you're actually taking on their habits so that you are becoming a certain type of person, right? Think, think of martial arts. Um, one of my kids has done Taekwondo, and there is a master of the, uh, of the dojo or of the gym or what is it, what is it called? The dojo? Okay, so you, you follow the master, and part of that is you, you sit there and they teach you things, but they also instruct you, sit this way, stand up, hold your body like this, do these motions, and you're, you're, a lot of what you're learning is just repeating certain bodily movements, and they are instructing you in this, but you're imitating the master and you're copying their habits. You're also learning the values that that person has like uh, focusing your mind and respecting elders, things like that. And so it's, it's actually shaping you into a certain type of person. So a disciple is really 
you could say it's more like a, a, a monk in a monastery. If you know about monastery life, you know that people join the monastery. They have someone who's the leader and they're essentially following that person and inhabiting a rule of life. And that is over time making them into a certain type of person. That's what we mean when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus. Now, the reason or one reason Matthew is such a great book to um, study, to look at this idea is that Matthew himself, the author, is functioning like a scribe. Um, Now, if you read the Gospel of Luke, he's kind of like a historian. If you if you look at John, he's looking at he's sort of telling a story as a close personal acquaintance of Jesus, this intimate friend. Matthew is telling the story like a scribe. He's telling the story of Jesus as if he has joined this new school of wisdom that Jesus has opened up. Now, what is a scribe? A scribe is someone who seeks wisdom from a teacher or from a body of literature by learning that material, copying it, writing it down, interpreting it for others, and then dispersing it and teaching it to other people. And so scribal schools were very common um, in that day and age. You had court officials, people who worked for a king, who would be a scribe. They're constantly writing down laws. They're um, collecting the wisdom of the court decisions, wise people who come in. They're, they're keeping track of that information. They're dispensing it as needed. So they were like scholars, but they're also kind of like monks. There's this interesting combination of those things. And this was very common back then. You see it in the New Testament with the Pharisees. They had a, a whole bunch of scribes as part of their party, right? You hear about it in the Bible with men like Ezra. Even the book of Proverbs has this um, sort of scribal imprint on it. And there's communities like the Qumran, uh, Qumran community and even non Jewish communities like the Epicureans, they had scribes, people who would write down this body of information, interpret it, explain it, and pass it on to others. And so what Matthew's gospel is shaped like is essentially he sees Jesus as the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes, and he becomes Jesus's disciple, and then he serves as a scribe who takes down Jesus's teaching and his way of life in order to pass it on to others so that they would become disciples. Matthew is a disciple and a scribe. And the purpose of his gospel is to make disciples, right? One of the most famous verses in the Bible comes at the very end where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And Matthew cues on that. And he says, okay, this is how I'm going to do that. I'm going to collect this information, this body of teaching. I'm going to inhabit it in my life and I'm going to pass it on to others so they can become disciples as well. So big picture, let me tell you how Matthew does that throughout his gospel, because I think it's important to frame the parts that we're going to be looking at. Matthew portrays Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. He's the one that the whole story is pointing to. He's also the one who bears Israel's story in his own life and then extends that story into the future. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at Jesus's Life in the story of Matthew, in in Matthew's gospel, it literally is repeating the Old Testament for us. It's literally reliving Israel's own story. And so he starts his gospel with a genealogy, which is one of the key markers in the book of Genesis. It's the way the whole book is structured. And so Matthew is cueing us that we've got a new Genesis here, and it's focused on this person, Jesus. Then it moves on as the story progresses. We hear the birth narrative of Jesus, and the whole thing is is patterned after Moses and the experience of Israel in Egypt. There's even a second 
Pharaoh, this Herod who's trying to kill the little children, right? And so we see Jesus, his early years, embodying the life of Israel. Then he goes through an exodus, just like Israel. He's baptized by John, which is what we just read about. And he goes into a wilderness, just like Israel did after they crossed the Red Sea and received the law at Mount Sinai. Then we see this formation of a new people in the Sermon on the Mount. This is like a second Mount Sinai. Jesus is like Moses bringing a law to the people of God. After that, we see the spies are sent out into the land, so to speak. And there's a new conquest that's supposed to happen. And then we see a a new kingdom develop and a new book of wisdom. And there's a new exile. And it goes on and on and on. The whole history of Israel is patterned in Jesus's life and ministry. So what Matthew is telling us is Jesus is the true Israel. He is the faithful son of God. He is the one that will serve as a light to the nations. He's the one who suffers as the servant of God in order to cleanse and redeem the people of God and bring them out of exile. He's the true wise man, greater than King Solomon, who's bringing God's law and his way to the world. He is the son of David, the promised king of God who would rule and bring God's reign onto the earth. That's what Matthew's gospel is intent on showing us. This biography of Jesus announces the reign of God in the person of Jesus, who is the anointed one. It's here. He's arrived. And now a new community is forming around Jesus. And Matthew is inviting us into that community. He's picturing Jesus as the master of this new school. And we are to follow Matthew as he followed Jesus. So here's what that school's going to look like. And I want you to repeat after me with these three components, okay? So this is what his school of discipleship is all about. First, you repeat after me, it's about being with Jesus. Being Being with with Jesus. Jesus. Secondly, it's about developing the character of Jesus. Developing the character of Jesus. And third, it's about doing the works of Jesus. Doing the works of Jesus. That's what we're going to see as we go through the sermon over and over and over again. So let's look at the master. This is the second uh, thing I want us to see today. Let's focus in a little bit more on Jesus himself. I want us to notice two things tonight about him. Now, let me give a little bit more context before I jump into the passage we looked at today. I already noted in Matthew 1 and 2, we get these birth narratives of Jesus. We learn about um, the threats on his life early on. We, we see that his life patterns the life of Israel. And we learn all these exalted titles about who Jesus is. He then escapes King Herod, a new pharaoh, and he goes into Egypt. And then he's called out of Egypt and he returns to Nazareth. In chapter 3, we uh, jump forward several decades We ended the story in in chapter 2 in Jesus' early years. But several decades later, we are now in the wilderness of Judea. Excuse me. And we encounter this man, John the Baptist, who we uh, hear is crying out in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what John is doing is he's embodying what was talked about in Isaiah when God's people were going to be in exile And out of exile, God would lead them through the wilderness into salvation, bringing them back to the promised land. And uh, there was this mention of one who would prepare the way for God to lead Israel out of Exodus. And John is embodying this, this one who would prepare the way. 
for, for God who would bring Israel out of exile. And as he's doing this, he's inviting Israel to repent. Get ready. God is coming. This renewal is coming. This end of exile is coming. And you have to repent. And so people are coming to the Jordan River, which is where Israel initially um, entered the promised land from, from their wilderness wanderings after being set free, free from Egypt. And so John calls them to sort of re-enter the promised land, to start over, to repent and come back through the waters of the Jordan into Israel and to live faithfully according to God's covenant. And so people are coming and being baptized. And so even the religious leaders start to come and he rebukes them and he says, who, who told you to come? You're the, you're the very people that I'm saying need to repent. And uh, this is not a small thing. But you, you resemble the evil one in the way that you're living and leading Israel. And so he, he challenges them. And then he talks about the one who was coming after him. This one that would be greater than him. That would not just baptize with water, but would baptize with the spirit. He's going to be full of the spirit. And he will send the spirit of God onto you. And that's um, when Jesus shows up in chapter 3, verse 13, which I read a moment ago. Let me read a little bit again. And I want us to think about what this is saying about the identity of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In the baptism of Jesus... God is identifying Jesus as his beloved son. But before that even happens, John is kind of shocked that Jesus would come and be baptized. Why is he doing that? What Jesus is doing here is identifying with Israel and with all of us in our sin. He's identifying with Israel and all of us in our sin. He's the beloved son. He's the anointed king. But he is... He is saying, I'm going to come and be near to you and stand next to you in solidarity with you in the brokenness of your sin and the curses of God. I'm going to enter and join into your exile and and fully enter into the judgment of God in order to bring this restoration that I'm promised to bring. And so as he's baptized, the spirit descends upon him. And this this is a picture of God's anointing. This is the one. And in whom all the spirit of God is poured out in fullness. He's washed and he's set aside as a, as a priest of God, as a king of God. And he's giving a foretaste of this exchange where he will give his life for those who are sinners that they might have new life. Now, right after this identification of who Jesus is happens, Jesus is thrust into the wilderness. Again, just like Israel, he goes from his baptism into the wilderness And he's continuing to replay Israel's story. But what is he doing there? He is preparing for the ministry that God has for him. And so um, he's thrust into the wilderness. And there he is tempted by the evil one. Just like Israel was tempted in Numbers. He was tempted about provision, about prestige, about power. And each time he refuses to test God or to grasp for God's gifts. Um, while avoiding the path that God had called him to. And he withstands all these temptations that come out of him, and he shows that he is faithful. And again, he is the true Israel. He is God's king. He is the savior of the world. Now, let me just, as a side note, I guess not a side note, this is really the bottom line, this is fundamental, that if, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, it begins by accepting and embracing who Jesus is. 
This is, this is key. We have to embrace the identity of Jesus, which is what Matthew is showing us. And there's so many distortions about Jesus out there that I'm, I'm sure you know them, but um, they're constantly being thrown at us, whether it's online or in conversations with other people. Um, Jesus is not portrayed by Matthew as just a great teacher or just some uh, guy who had some prophetic message for Israel or a lunatic or some sort of liar. Jesus is portrayed by Matthew as the Lord, as God himself who has come to be with us. And that's where we begin in our discipleship. That's not everything, but it's, it's essential to everything else we're going to see about being a disciple. So that's the first thing I want us to see is the identity of Jesus. But I want us to focus on this other dimension of what's going on here, which is the practice of Jesus as the one who is going to lead this new school of followers. The practice of Jesus as the leader of a new school of followers. Jesus is the, the wise man of God, and he is leading this new way of being. And look at how he begins right after his baptism, right? I mean, think about uh, the Gospel of Luke for a second. You know that passage where Jesus is in the temple, and he's wowing the, the priests and the teachers of the law with his knowledge? He was clearly a student of scripture. He, had, he, he soaked it up. He knew the word of God. And we see that again in chapter four. Before he goes into his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness and he's being tempted and he keeps responding with the word of God. It's like soaked down deep into his bones. And as the, the devil tempts him, he is speaking the word of God back to the evil one. And so look at what Matthew says in, in chapter four, verse one. Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, this is easy to walk over or to just pass by. But I want us to see that Matthew is telling us about the practices of our Lord and our master. He is engaging in his body in certain practices that prepare him to go into his ministry. He was baptized and anointed with the Spirit, and before he just jumped right into preaching, it says he went into the wilderness and he fasted, and along with fasting always comes prayer. He was alone and isolated. He got away from everybody. This is the discipline of solitude, which almost always is paired with Scripture. So Jesus is engaging in 40 days of training, of practicing, of preparation in order to go and live the life that he was called to live by God. What I want us to see here is that um, even Jesus had to train and be formed to live a faithful life. And if Jesus is the model for us, training us in his way, then we also have to think about our habits and our training rituals that are preparing us to be who God is calling us to be. Jesus started with, and he constantly returned to, Getting alone and being with the Heavenly Father. Do you hear that? This happened throughout his ministry, not just at the beginning. There's time and time again in the Gospels where it says he withdrew and got alone to pray. Jesus started and he returned to the practice of getting alone with his Father. Blaise Pascal in his uh, famous writings, the, the Pensee, says all humanity's problems stem from man's ability to sit quietly in a room alone. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. What he means there is being alone with God. 
right? We were just talking about prayer in the seminar uh, a little bit earlier, and we talked about the challenges. And of course, it's like distractions, which is so abundant today. Cell phones, children, busy things, you know, go on and on. We got so many distractions. The biggest challenge we have, and that the root of all the world's problems, at least according to Pascal, is our inability to be alone with God. Now, I admit, sometimes I do not want to sit alone with God. And part of the reason for that, a lot of times, is that I know that if I sit alone with God, and I recognize his presence, I'm going to be confronted with my faults. I'm going to feel the pain that is going on in my life that I tend to try to ignore or just work past. Or I'm going to hear God's voice leading me into the places of obedience that I'm kind of resisting. I don't know about you, but that's a big part of my struggle in being alone with God, is knowing when I'm actually quiet, I actually attend to the presence of God, what I might find there. Our inability to sit sit quietly with God and to listen to his word and to be examined and to notice our inner life and to pour out our hearts to God, this is at the heart of all of our problems in parenting, in family, in work, in relationships, in anxiety, in insecurity, in anger, despair, whatever problems we have, this is at the heart of it. I'm not saying it solves everything right away, but it's at the heart of what's going on in us. Jesus got alone with his heavenly father regularly and definitely at the beginning of his ministry. If he had to do it, you need to do it. I need to do it. And it prepared him to face what he faced at the end of that 40-day period where he was tempted, right? And he was offered all sorts of things by the evil one to short-circuit God's plan, right? This was not an easy thing for him to go through, but he faithfully resisted the devil's temptation. So Jesus trained with solitude and with prayer And I want us to see that we also, as disciples, need to start with that. We need to learn to get alone with the Father. That's at the heart of discipleship, being with the Master. So, what does that look like? It means that we regularly need to come to be with Jesus. This is our, yeah, the final point. We need to come and and get alone and be with Jesus. Now, for some people, that means... You've never, you've always resisted coming to God. And that means you need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to repent of your sin and say, this is the master. This is the one I'm supposed to be following. He's the king. He's the Lord. I need to be a part of his school because his school is the way of life. That's the first step. But then after you've done that, you've got to keep coming back to Jesus regularly. Spend time with him. And uh, we were, again, we were just talking about this in the, in the seminar today. It's kind of funny how they overlap. But sometimes we need to make a plan to do that. Find a way to set aside time and to have a regular routine where you know you're going to be able to get a few moments of solitude and quiet. And I know that's very hard for some people in certain segments of life or or certain seasons of life. But make a plan so that you can get alone and be with God. And when you're alone with God, remember that you're a child of God. Reflect on that. Drink that in. Dwell on the promises of God that you are a beloved child of God as a gift of grace. And learn who God is and enjoy him. Study scriptures. Pour out your heart to God. That means don't just read your Bible or theology books. As you are reading and uh, studying theology, pray. Right? Read those things. Yes, read and pray. And then read some more and pray some more. Attend to the presence of God. 
Remember that he is with you in that moment. You are not just by yourself. You're actually in his presence. And notice what is going on in you and pour it out to God. This is fundamental. It's one of the key practices of being a disciple. Now, I want to tell you about a tension uh, that I've always felt between some of the things that Matthew says and Jesus says in this gospel about being a disciple. And I wonder if you feel this tension as well. Uh, Some of you know Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Right? Famous passage on discipleship. And when you read that, you hear of self-denial. Right? Even to the point of death, right? Lose your life in order to gain it. It's a, it's a rigorous thing. Discipleship is hard, right? But then Matthew 11, and you, this is going to be familiar to you as well. Verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? And you hear this language, being a disciple means rest. <laughs> it means uh, ease, a, a light burden. So I hear those too, and I've always, like, how do those go together? How is it self-denial and lose your life and maybe die on the one hand and come, rest, it's light, right? It's hard to put those together. Which one is it? And so as I've wrestled with this, uh, especially thinking about this series, I was thinking about what happens when you are a part of a dysfunctional group of relationships. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's friends. And, you know, everybody's got these patterns of relating and it just over and over and over again, you see the same thing play out where there's conflict and it's stress and anxiety and it's messed up and people are getting hurt and you're, and, and you're a part of it, right? You're participating in that. And then, and then one day you start getting some help and you start seeing some things differently, and then you, start, um, then you start changing the way that you engage in that relationship. And you refuse to continue in those same patterns, and you realize, oh my gosh, this is so free. Like, I feel like a new person. I'm no longer participating in that. It's still messed up, and I, this is a way of life. This is what life is supposed to be like. And yet, as you do that, the system starts reacting to you and doesn't like that you're changing things up and, they, and it gets harder for you for a while? You know what I'm talking about? If you don't, you talk to Joel, get some therapy, that'd be good for you. Um, but that's, I think that's the dynamic here, is that there's a way of life that Jesus is calling us into. And it's, it is easy, it is life, it is uh, for freedom. And Jesus is saying, come to me, you can have that. But, but know that it's going to be hard because as soon as you start changing and living according to my school, there will be suffering. There may even be death. That's, I think, what Jesus is getting at in these two different places. He's inviting us to find life in him. And it will be a struggle. It will be a different way of being. You're going to have to make changes. You have to, you have to put certain things to death. You have to give certain things up. And there is pain in that. But it's, it's going to bring you rest and life. That's what Jesus wants for you and for me. And we know that because um, Jesus gave up his life 
for our sin. He doesn't start a school and say, come follow me, I'll show you how to live and then your life will be good if you just do what I do. No, he, he gave up his life for us so that we would live. He took on the heavy yoke, the heavy burdens of all our dysfunctional ways of living and was crushed by it so that we could have easy life in him. So that we could have rest. That's what I want us to see in this whole thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to challenge us. It's going to call us to grow in our character and to establish new habits and to do things that Jesus did that are hard for us to enter into. But we do that knowing that Jesus gave himself for us. And his school, his way of life is freeing. It's for our joy. It's so that we can shrug off all these messed up ways of living that we, that we adapt and, and we uh, adopt from other people and we learn from the world and it just brings death and chaos everywhere. So who are you and who are you becoming? Are you prepared for what's coming? Like what Peter thought he was prepared for? Do you know who you are? Are you able to faithfully handle what you're dealing with now or what is to come? I hope you aren't, because, uh, or at least you're, I hope you're willing to admit you aren't, because that's where um, the life comes from. So we're about to go to this table, and um, just as I've called you to spend time with your Heavenly Father, we come together to eat this meal and, and to recognize that God is with us now. We are his children. He's not abandoned us. He is present with us. By the Holy Spirit, we feast in faith on the body and blood of Christ. We take God's promises deep down in us, remembering that Christ gave his life so that we could have life anew. And so I want to invite you to come and get a taste of that rest that Jesus offers for his children. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together.